0: Take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 6. We have completed chapter 5, the beginning of the beatitudes or the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which started with the beatitudes, and today we start chapter 6. All of chapter 5, 6 and 7 are the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached. It's the greatest sermon ever preached on this earth, and we are in the middle of it. I find it fascinating that this text would be our text this morning, and it just goes to show the resiliency of God's people on the earth, that in all times, in all ages, all cultures, all issues that man faced, God has always had a faithful remnant of people who remain strong and faithful to him. If you go back to the early church, you'll find that the conditions, the external conditions surrounding the church, when God chose, of all times, to launch the church on the earth, you had the Roman Empire who was pressing down on the Jews in the Roman occupation. You had Christians who were facing great persecution at the hands of Romans and of the Jews. Jerusalem was a mess. When the early church started, it wasn't long after that they began to separate and move out of Jerusalem because the persecution was so great, it scattered the church. And yet, in spite of all of that, the church was faithful to God, and God added to their number daily those who were being saved. Why? Because they were meeting daily the external conditions that they face did not deter them from their purpose on this earth. You and I who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are his children. And listen to me, we belong to the kingdom of God. That kingdom transcends any earthly kingdom. And while we should have an interest in our own government and we should have interest to see righteousness prevail over evil, I agree with that. Yet at the same time, whether or not righteousness prevails in the way that we believe is is good, we are still God's children. We are still part of the kingdom of God, and God expects us to live in this world with righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You move into the dark ages when you had Bloody Mary who was putting Christians, burning them at the stake. Because they would not go along with her view of transubstantiation. That is, that they did not believe when they would take the Lord's Supper that they were actually internalizing the flesh and the blood of Jesus. That somehow the priest performed some ceremony over the cup and the the bread and now it becomes the literal body of Christ. And that they would look to that as they would come forward as a way of getting their cleansing through communion. You're not saved by communion. You're saved by the work of Christ on the cross. Communion is just a reminder of that. And so great men stood up against the Catholic Church at that time and didn't try to oppose, didn't try to protest by going out and burning down buildings. They simply stood on the Word of God. They had councils, they had uh, all kinds of meetings, and they would try to convince the leaders of the Catholic Church, you're misconstruing The scripture. We will not bow down to Bloody Mary's attempt to get us to believe transubstantiation. And so you have Martin Luther and those like him, Zwingli and Calvin and so many others, who took a stand in the dark ages when believers were being persecuted to death. It was, and we just have always been able to survive, we've always been able to thrive in these types of environments. I don't know if you know, but the song we sang, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, Martin Luther wrote that song, and the words to the song. He didn't write the song. You know where the song came from? It was a bar song, a bar tune. They used to sing, I once knew a barmaid, her name was Matilda luther steals a bar song and says a mighty fortress is our god isn't that awesome that's a christian making something that's bad turning it into something that's good in the midst of whatever trial we face in life whatever going on going on in our nation right now it doesn't matter to us it matters in the sense that we want righteousness yes but whether or not it turns out the way we want it doesn't matter our god is still on the throne And we are to be faithful and we are to share Christ everywhere we go. Everywhere we go. Every day we have opportunity. In fact, if things go south, and I pray they don't, I pray that we see righteousness prevail in our nation. But if it doesn't prevail, that just means there's more darkness. And that means that we have a greater witness because we're the light sent into the world to wipe out the darkness. Amen? So, Amen, brother. So we ought to be getting excited about the opportunities before us. In fact, I I really believe this. If you look at our brothers and sisters around the globe who've been living in times of great persecution, I mean, they live in it, they've been in it for, for hundreds of years, and yet they're so strong in the Lord. And we come to America, and you've got a bunch of Christians who are more religious than they are saved, and we hide from every little possible persecution that might come our way. It shows how anemic, it shows how weak we are as believers in America compared to other nations. And so maybe God is preparing us for some growth. He's going to strengthen us, he's going to strengthen our faith, he's going to strengthen our resolve, he's going to strengthen our trust in the Word of God to get us through. See, being a believer is a walk by faith, not a walk by what you see. We need to learn to trust God even when we can't know where he's going amen all right well now that sermon's over let's <laughs> preach the next sermon matthew chapter 6 here jesus continues the sermon on the mount by addressing interestingly in- inner attitudes of those who are in the kingdom of god and this is going to be a very i, I just feel god led me to a very practical message today very practical It's on Christian living and how easy it is to be entangled in hypocrisy. And we lose our witness with the world. A message that every believer needs to hear and heed as they walk in the newness of life in Christ. Verse 1, follow with me chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order, you're doing it for a reason, to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. In the area of praying, of giving, and of fasting, and also any other righteous work that we would be part of, Jesus talks about Hypocrites, hypocrites. He says it's very easy to be a hypocrite. The Greeks are the ones who came up with the concept of uh, it's, it's, it's It speaks of an actor in a theater. And back in that day when they first started, they would have those masks they would hold up and it would be a real smile face or a frown so that it would accentuate what the actor was trying to personify. And and so that's where we get the word or the phrase two-faced from. And nobody likes somebody who's being two-faced, right? In other words, you put on something and you walk around so people will think you're somebody special or that you're somebody righteous, but then you take off the mask and the real you comes out when nobody's looking and it's a totally different picture. This is what Jesus is addressing here. He said, don't be like the Pharisees when practicing your righteousness. Don't be hypocritical in your righteousness. There was an area outside of the temple courtyard in Jerusalem called the Chamber of the Secret. People would go there and drop their gifts off that they had designated for the poor in a large chest called a trumpet. So you would go there on the side of the building and there you would put your gift for the poor into the trumpet. Uh, Later, the poor would come to the chamber of the secret and receive gifts from the trumpet. It was all done very discreetly in an act of humility and an act of honesty. But as the years went on, the Pharisees decided it wasn't practical to go all the way to the temple to give alms to the poor. So instead, They tied a small brass or silver trumpet to their belt, a literal trumpet. And whenever they wanted to give to the poor, they would just go out on the street corner where there's a crowd of people, and they would blow their trumpets. And upon hearing this, the poor people in the area would gather around them as the Pharisees generously began to distribute their alms to the poor. And they did it with great fanfare, blowing, tooting their horn, having people gather, and in their long white robes, because they represented righteousness, they would then drop the coins upon the the poor. This is what Jesus is addressing here. People would walk up and see those guys doing that, and people were going, wow. He is so righteous. Look at the money he's giving to the poor today. That is so awesome. And not really know that it's all a front. God says to that Pharisee or to any Pharisees today, any Hypocrites today, he says when you do that, when you carry out practical righteousness in front of man in order to be seen by man, you just got your reward. If men praise you for what you did, that's your reward. When you die, there is no further reward. You made your reward about you and about this life. Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites because they didn't give out of a concern for the poor. They gave in order to be seen as righteous. See, the entire Sermon on the Mount is about doing right things for right reasons. And right things for right reasons always begin in the heart. They never start outside of you. They never are focused on the outside and people seeing what you're doing. It's always what you have in your heart to do. And then you just do it. And not because you're wanting to be seen, but sometimes people see it. But that's okay. You didn't lose your reward with God because you didn't do it to be seen you got to check your motives let's look at verse 3 but but when you give to the needy do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you notice jesus doesn't say if you give to the needy what does he say when you give to the needy it is very important that god's people practice giving to those in need. Very important that we all practice that. Very important that our money goes beyond ourselves and that even portions of our funds, some of you say, well, I'm a faithful tither to the church. Great. What have you given to the poor lately? How have you blessed someone lately? And that can come in so many ways and so many different uh, uh, shapes and sizes I, it can even be uh, i was at a outback steakhouse about a year ago and i was sitting there for uh, uh early dinner renee was out of town visiting her family up in new Smyrna, and so i just went in like at five o'clock or five thirty for an early meal and um, i'm sitting there they put me back in the far corner and i'm not a big outback guy put I, i'm still waiting for uh, uh texas roadhouse to come to town amen okay anyway <laughs> We've got one down in St. Lucie now, praise God, and one up in Palm Bay. Uh, but, but I was sitting there. I hope I don't have any outback employees working here uh, or managers. <laughs> got to be careful there. Um, after the thought, when it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, so, so I'm sitting there, and there's a couple that come in, and they're, they, they're teenagers. They're probably 18 years old, 17 years old. And I could tell, I mean, I'm sitting here facing the wall just about, but there's one table closer to the wall than me. They stuck this, this young teenage couple back against the wall in the corner of the building on their date. No, no windows, nothing. And I'm thinking, all right, that doesn't sound right. So I'm watch, and I can tell this guy really has not been out on very many dates. <laughs> and she has not either because she's sitting there, and they don't even hardly know what to say to each other. Maybe it was an arranged date by the parents. I don't know. But anyway, it was kind of awkward at the table. And they were sitting there, and they were small talk, you know, try to get something started, looking at the menu. And as he's looking at the menu, I could see him looking for the cheaper meals. Let's see. (laughs) Oh, I hope she doesn't order that. So I just, it just came over me. Bless them. Bless them. And so uh, I just said to the waitress, I said, hey, uh, let me have their tab when, when they're done. Let me, let, me, let me have that. And I had no clue what they were going to order or whatever. It didn't matter. That wasn't the point. The point was I wanted to bless them. And uh, she brought me the tab, and I paid for it, and I left. And I said to the woman, please don't tell them where this came from. Don't tell them. I want people to know. That's, that was something that God put up in my heart to do. Rini and I go to restaurants all the time. We're looking for somebody who looks like maybe, you know, they, they don't eat out a lot, or maybe they're an older couple that just is on a limited, maybe they're on Social Security. You can just sense that this is a big deal to them. And we sit, and we towards the end of our meal, we're always like, okay, now who, who are we going to bless today? We're looking around the restaurant. Oh, okay, yeah, let's go with them. And we call that waitress. Hey, can, can we have their ticket? We want to bless them. Walk out, never. See, that's, that's good that we look beyond ourselves and think beyond what comes to us. Think about giving to others. Amen? I just think it's very fascinating how easy it is for us to get caught up in the flesh and everything's about me. And This is my woe. This is what I'm facing. If that's you, if you're having a difficult time looking beyond yourself and your woes and your problems and whatever, today, not tomorrow, today, Sunday afternoon, I want you to go to one of the local, I want you to go to one of the local nursing homes and come in with a huge box filled with flowers and tell the ladies, would you please put one of these in each of the rooms for the people that are living here? They'll never get to see you. They'll never know who brought them, and that's okay. But what happens is you just took your mind off of you. You put your mind on others, and now all of a sudden, you begin to sense and feel, I'm a believer. I'm here for a purpose. This is worth it. This is good. Our kids need to see us doing that. Our kids need to be taught to do it. Amen? Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. The Pharisees designated the third, the sixth, and the ninth hours as the times of their prayers. That would be at 9 a.m., at noon, and three in the afternoon. And and so they would faithfully go to the synagogue at those particular times and there they would offer their alms, there they would pray, whatever. But we're told in the book of Daniel that the prophet Daniel opened his windows toward Jerusalem when he was in Babylon and he prayed three times a day, but nobody knew it. He never broadcast it. It was between him and God. I love that. The Pharisees were not doing it to seek the Lord. They were doing it to seek men and the approval of men. Daniel did it not for the approval of men, but for the Lord. So how do we know this? On their way to pray, the Pharisees would stop on the corner of the street and begin to offer long verbose prayers So i'm gonna just they just would go on and on and on and add these big words to their prayers and pray these long prayers they would say we're so eager to pray that we can't even wait to get to the synagogue i'm on my way it's the three o'clock hour but but uh, i'm going to stop here on the street and just i just can't wait to pray of course they would always choose a very busy street to stop on again Now, we can look down upon the Pharisees, but honestly, don't we sometimes pull these little tricks ourselves? We do things so that people see it or so they know it because that's in our heart. That's what you and I fight against every day. And God says that when you're able to fight against that by the power of the Spirit and resist being seen by people and doing it so that people will know about it, when you can resist that, what a blessing it is to God and what a blessing it is to the person. When you pray, verse 6, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Twice he already said, Jesus said, that the Father does not reward those who seek to do righteous things for, for, to be seen. Now he says, the one who does it in private, God rewards you. Now you have the blessing of God on what you're doing. It's different now. The Father sees in secret and he blesses you openly and eternally. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that those will be heard for their many words. Jesus encourages us to be short and concise in our prayers. Not that a longer prayer is wrong or bad, but he doesn't encourage that. He's like, just pray a prayer. Use simple words. Get to the point. Make it simple and see what your Father can do with that. It's interesting. Sometimes we think unless we pray long, drawn-out prayers, God's not going to hear us. In other words, I have to somehow lasso God in my prayer, and I've got to corner God, get him in the corner where he can't get away, and then I can really uh, get him to do what I need him to do. That's not praying to the Father. That's a human being trying to appeal in ways of humanity to God. No, no, we're spiritual beings, We come to God differently. In Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon said that God is in heaven. You're on earth, so let your words be few. Wise words from the wisest man. God doesn't need your explanation of who the people are that you're praying about, and he doesn't need to know why you're praying for them. Listen to me. He already knows it. As if the Lord is up in heaven saying, Your mom? Oh, what's her name again? Now, Now what's the situation? Tell me again, I, I, what is it? That's not how the father acts. We don't need to inform the Lord or convince the Lord. We just need to connect with the Lord and do it privately. Verse 8, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So when you're praying for someone else, God already knows what, what they need. When you're praying for yourself, he already knows cut through all the verbose prayers, get away from that nonsense. Just get real with God. That's what Jesus died on the cross for, so that you could have a relationship with the Father. Amen? Now, interestingly, the Lord gives us a guideline for prayer. Look, if you will, at verse 9, pray then like this. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, this is a manner of prayer. This is an, a, a way of prayer. This is like, it can be used like a guideline for prayer. He, he didn't say you have to pray these words and memorize them. That's not what he says. Look what it starts out. Pray then like this. Think about the elements of this particular prayer I'm going to give you. And then pray like this. Consider these elements in your own prayer with your own words. So now... I want to say something in just a moment about memorizing prayers. I don't think there's a thing wrong with that. But I think it's the intent of the heart when you do it. We'll talk about that in just a second. But let's look at the prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And leave us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I was tempted this week to just break down every one of those and let that be the end of the sermon. But I want to get through the chapter because I think this chapter speaks to where we are as a people in this nation today, as Christians. So we're, gonna, we're not we're going we're to go there. We're not going to break down each verse. But I'm going to tell you this. As we sing and pray this famous prayer of our Lord, don't be like the Pharisees who are guilty of meaningless repetition. By the way, you say, wait a minute, why didn't Matthew finish the prayer? Where's thy, you know, where, where did he talk about, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as in heaven, and, go on, and to the end, you know, he starts talking about the power of God, and forever and ever, amen! Where is that? It didn't show up in many of the manuscripts, the original manuscripts. So because there was question, they left it off. And other versions of the Bible include it. So it doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means that we didn't see enough evidence in enough manuscripts that we would put it in with the rest of canonized Scripture. Now, Scripture doesn't forbid meaningful repetition. This is what I want to point out to you. Jesus isn't saying repetition in and of itself is wrong. In fact, if you turn to Matthew 26, just go over, if you will. I want you to underline this in your Bible. Matthew chapter 26. So we're still... Uh, in Matthew's Gospel. This This is Matthew recording a time when Jesus was praying. I want you to see this. This is fascinating. Matthew 26, and look at verse 44. So Matthew records, So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time. Look at this saying the same words again here's an example of jesus praying repetitiously so don't think that if you pray a repetitious prayer it's wrong in itself it's not it can be right to pray meaningful repetition and this is one of the prayers that should be memorized this prayer that jesus gives his disciples in matthew's gospel chapter six because it's profound this prayer is profound this prayer is powerful But make sure your mind is engaged as you're repeating it. Probably most people have memorized this prayer. But when you memorize things, doesn't mean that as you're saying it, that you're actually thinking about it. And that's what God is up to here. That's what Jesus is trying to say. It's okay to memorize and repeat the Lord's Prayer, but mean it. Think through what you're praying as you pray those common words that you've prayed so many times before very important make sure your mind is engaged as far as we know the disciples never asked jesus to teach them how to preach we have no record that jesus ever taught the disciples how to prophesy we have no record that he ever taught them how to cast out a demon there's no record of them asking him to worship or witness or how to build a ministry or lead their families the one thing the disciples asked of jesus directly was lord teach us how to pray and jesus in teaching how to pray gave them a prayer that can either be prayed repetitiously with meaning or you can just simply use it as an outline take each section our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name the very first part of your prayer life ought to be worshipful prayer that I'm worshiping God first and foremost. I don't start with my long grocery list of needs. I start with God. Why? Because if I put God first, it'll change what my prayer need list looks like. And I'll have a confidence as I offer up the request. See, if you don't remember who God is and you've got a big problem in your life, it's easy to think the problem's almost too big for God. Or I've got to talk God into dealing with this problem. No, start with the greatness of your God who is bigger and more transcendent over all issues of this world. Then you find that you can pray the needs quickly and easily. You're just handing them over to God by faith. And a difference comes in your life because you walk away with a confidence. The one thing the disciples asked of Jesus directly, Lord, teach us to pray. Why would they do that? why did they keep t- asking for that because as they watched Jesus for several years they were convinced that the prayers that Jesus prayed in secret in his ministry they had an impact on everything he did in other words they saw that prayer in Christ's life was foundational to his ministry how many times and you know we believe that every person in our church who's saved is called by God to minister. You're here for a purpose, to minister. But how many times do you take time away in private to pray before you minister? So if you think about it, if all you're doing is giving and giving and giving of ministry, but you never prayed, where's the strength and the energy coming from to minister? It's coming out of you. What do you have that people need? Nothing. What we need is God's strength. We need God's wisdom. We need God's presence. Amen? Then we minister God to people. If I'm not mistaken, that's what it says when Paul in Corinthians said that he's the God of all comfort and we comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. You don't comfort others with your comfort. You comfort them with the comfort that you receive from the Lord. you got to spend time with Him to get that comfort, to get that confidence, to get that, that anointing. In Luke 11, Jesus gave His disciples the same prayer, virtually word for word, that He had given two years earlier, recorded in, in Matthew's Gospel. But He didn't say, the prayer I taught you two years ago was for the multitudes, but for you disciples, here, here's something a little heavier. He didn't say, the prayer I taught this, in the Sermon on the Mount was at the beginning of my ministry, but now, two years later, here's some real meat that you can chew on. His approach in Luke was much more like, don't you recall what I taught you in Matthew's Go- two years ago in the ministry that's recorded in Matthew's Gospel? He gave the same prayer verbatim. So while the Lord's Prayer is a wonderful model and a perfect example, it can be much more than that. It can be sacramental in a, in a, in a sense. In that when we pray that prayer of time with God, we are connecting with the Father. And there comes over me, when I, whenever I come out of prayer, whether it's a short prayer or long prayer, if it's truly meaningful, when I come out of it, I have a peace I didn't have prior. You ever had that? Something happened. I found my strength in God. I found my strength in His Word as I prayed, reminding myself of the promises of God something unique that happens don't recall, I, I don't know that I recall a time when I was really meaningfully praying that I didn't sense something significant happening in me as I prayed two characteristics of this prayer in Matthew's gospel first, I'll be quick with these first, this prayer is a complete prayer In other words, it covers all God's worthiness and all of our needs. The Lord's Prayer. It covers everything. That's why I say you can use it as a guide. Okay? Secondly, it's concise. It's not a long prayer. Jesus said, pray in this manner. Pray like this. And he prayed a short prayer. It wasn't an hour long. Now, you know, I know in the garden on a specific situation where he's about to hand, be handed over to the Roman soldiers and to the Jewish council, uh, right before his death, Jesus prayed and he tarried for an hour in prayer. But that was unique. If you look at the whole of the New Testament and especially the Gospels in the life of Christ, his prayers were not long and drawn out. We've fallen into the trap of thinking that the strength of prayer is in direct proportion to the length of prayer or to the big words that we use in prayer. Even though Jesus went out of his way to say that we wouldn't be heard for our long prayers, Jesus' own prayers were complete and they were concise. You would think that if you asked the Lord to teach you how to pray, he would give you a manual as thick as the Bible, right? I mean, this is God you're asking. Teach me how to pray. Oh, let me just lay this on you wham there you go now you can learn how to pray no gave a few sentences that's it nothing more but mean it really mean it when you pray when moses sister miriam was struck with leprosy moses looked to the lord and said in numbers chapter 12 verse 13 moses cried to the lord and said this oh god please heal her please that was it that was his prayer Oh, God, please heal her, please. He didn't even give her name. I guess God knows who he's praying about. Isn't that amazing that God would be able to know that? And he didn't tell God what the problem was. Well, she's having this kind of an issue With the doctor said this, and the, another doctor said this, and we're just not sure really what's going on, and Lord, we just, you know, and then there's this other thing that's going Just, Lord, pray for my friend. They're sick. They need your touch. We also know Moses was so in love with God that he spent 40 days and 40 nights seeking God's face in the desert. So I'm not discounting or diminishing the importance of those lengthy times with the Lord in prayer. But in our daily prayer life, it doesn't need to be that way. It needs to be real, it should be concise, get to the point and then let make sure it's complete. Think about the Lord's prayer as you pray. Think about these words. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There's the worship. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. There's the directive. Guide me today, Lord. It doesn't start with what I see on earth. Let heaven come down. Whatever you have in heaven, let that be in my life on earth. Give us this day our daily bread. There's the request. God, you're my provider. He didn't draw it out. Oh, Lord, if you only knew the number of bills I haven't paid yet and this and that. God already knows. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Keep my heart clean, Lord. Keep my accounts short with others. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, let me grow in my faith, trusting you each and every day. Because if you trust God, he will deliver you from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We've added that. Somebody added it at some point. And the reality is, it's good stuff. It's a reminder that God's in control. He's sovereign, amen? You pray in that manner every day in your simple daily prayer life. Watch out the confidence you'll have when you exit prayer, the the peace you'll have over the matters that you're facing in life. Then you get on with your day. Praise God, move on. For if you forgive others their trespasses, verse 14, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I want to say this about that passage. Oftentimes we interpret that to mean that somehow if I don't forgive others of of, of the sins that they've committed against me, then God's not going to forgive me of my sins and I won't go to heaven. That's not what he's dealing with here. He's dealing with the forgiveness with others. You're not going to lose your salvation because in this instance of another person, you didn't forgive them. That takes away the entire work of Christ on the cross. That takes away the work of grace. No, no. He's saying that in that relationship, if you don't forgive them, I can't forgive you in that relationship. There's something undone in your life. And you walk around and you avoid that person. Why? Because you're unwilling to forgive them. And God's like, I want you to feel wrong when you don't settle the account with them. You see the difference? It has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with our relationship with people on earth. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. See, the Pharisees, the ones who blew the trumpets when they gave their gifts and prayed on the street corners, to attract people uh, because they couldn't wait to get to church. They fasted every Monday and every Thursday. You could always tell when they were fasting because they walked around with long, drawn faces, unbrushed teeth, and uncombed hair. They made it obvious. They, normally they walked around like this on Monday and Wednesday and Friday, on Tuesday and Thursday. Oh, oh, oh they're, so, they're so righteous. Look at him. That man has been in prayer. He hasn't eaten any food. Look at him. Jesus said, when you fast, comb your hair, wash your face, brush your teeth. Hide it. Don't let people know you're fasting. And then what your father sees you doing in secret, he will reward you. If you wear it out there, you know, I would say this to you, go to the point, and I've done both, and I, and I always feel, I feel like I have done the wrong thing. If I have a day that I'm going to fast, I choose a day when I don't have appointments with people. You say, well, that's pretty extreme. Well, I don't want to go to lunch with somebody and then announce to them, well, I'm not eating today, I'm fasting. <laughs> I just did exactly what Jesus said not to do. So be that secret about it. Just do it when nobody's around. You know, okay, I've got two days coming and nobody's going to be around. I'm going to take one of those days and fast. And then by the next day, you know, I'll eat and I'll look, I'll look good I'll, and I'll go out and talk to people again. And nobody will ever know it. But your father knew. Isn't that wonderful? Between you and God, you were fasting. Fasting is an important discipline, by the way. And it's often neglected. And when we say fast, we don't mean that you have to fast for a month. You don't have to fast for 40 days. You don't have to fast for a week. You don't have to fast for a whole day. You can fast one meal. Fasting can be many things. It's not even, in fact, it's not even always food. You can fast TV. But here's what fasting does for you. In the Scriptures, we see fasting primarily for two reasons. Write these down. Number one, first, for direction. Both examples in the Old Testament of fasting are found in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. In the New Testament, we see the examples not only in the life of Jesus, but also in the book of Acts. When people desired to know God's will or direction, they fasted. So you fast to know what God's directing you towards. Physiologists tell us that when there's no food in the stomach, there's great blood flow to the brain. Isn't that interesting? when you're not digesting food anymore, all of a sudden the blood flow goes to the brain. You think clearer. You think right. It's a natural physiological response to fasting with food. That's a good thing. Some of us, no, you cannot fast every day. I know some of you want to be really clear in your head on a daily basis. But, But periodically, a nice fast puts you in touch with God. Once you overcome those initial hunger pangs that you're going to feel, you begin to think more focused and more clearly than ever before. Now God can speak more clearly. The Word of God as you're reading it, it comes alive to you. You have clarity that you didn't have before. On the other hand, if you have a Wendy's triple cheeseburger and a couple Frosties, you, you want to sleep. You don't want to think clear. Puts you to sleep. I went to a, to a steakhouse with some pastors one time. And these two pastors were going to have a contest who could eat the biggest steak and all the trimmings on the plate. And I thought, this will be fun. And sure enough, they put down like a, it was like a 21-ounce steak. Both of them ate the whole steak. And then they had to have the baked potato, and they had to have the salad and all the trim. They ate all of it. And we went back to the retreat center after the meal, and we were going to gather together, and we noticed that one of the guys wasn't there. And uh, we asked his roommate, hey, where is he? And here's what he said. He walked in the room, saw the bed, fell flat, and hadn't moved a muscle the last hour. A meat trauma, man. The guy's gone. Fasting is good for us. Gives us clarity. Amen? Here's a second reason for fasting, for liberation. When you feel oppressed or bound or hassled by some sin or some problem in your life, some temptation in your life, fasting is a powerful weapon in your spiritual arsenal. When you say no to your stomach and start putting prayer ahead of your stomach, something dynamic begins to happen inside of you. Saying no to your physical appetite helps you say no to other temptations that hassle you. You're actually getting control again. And you're doing it by the will of God, by the Spirit of God. You're strengthening yourself spiritually while you're neglecting yourself physically, eating-wise. That's a good thing. If you say, well, man, I've been under so much, so much temptation lately. Stop eating and start fasting a little bit. And then pray and watch a strength and a confidence come back to you. If you need direction, if you need, uh, if you need uh, uh, clarity, uh, skip lunch. Hunger for God more than food. And watch what God does with that. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For here it is, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now he shifts directions, and Jesus begins to teach us about the things we value the most, and especially money itself. Giving is not a way, is not God's way of raising cash. Giving is God's way of raising us, his children. Every time I give, I am giving away part of my stinginess, part of my self-centeredness. Every time I give, that's what I'm giving away. I'm saying it's not about me. The Lord wants my heart, folks. He doesn't want my money. In other words, in the sense that he needs it, that, oh, gosh, we're not going to make it in the kingdom of God if you don't give your pennies to me. And that's what your money is compared to what he owns. It's pennies. It's nothing. It's not about the money. It's about your heart. That's what God's after here. If I have treasure in heaven, guess where my heart will be? It's profoundly interesting here that Jesus didn't say where your heart is, that is where your treasure will be. Instead, he said, Put your treasure in heaven and your heart will follow. It doesn't start with your heart and what you want. It starts with obedience to God. I'm going to be a giver of God. I'm going to be somebody in the kingdom of God who puts the kingdom ahead of myself. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added. And when you put God's kingdom first, your heart follows. It's so simple. It's so practical. Verse 22, "...the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness?" By the way, he's still talking about money here. The eye is the channel through which you find illumination as a being. If you have an evil eye, your whole body will be full of darkness. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-two says it this way, a stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. Who has an evil eye? It's the one who lives for riches. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's not wrong to have things, but if you live for things, your eye is evil. Your life will be dark. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, write that down, 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Don't set your heart on the, he called it the uncertainty of riches. You set your heart on the things that God richly provides you by faith. Paul didn't say, sell your goods. He said, don't trust in your goods. You don't have to give everything up. You just need to make sure none of it sits on the throne of of your heart. That's for God alone, right? Mammon, Jesus says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or God and mammon. Mammon is more than nickels and dimes and dollar bills, folks. Jesus identifies mammon as a master. Money can become a master. Money can become a god, little g. It's a demonic force that wants you to become focused on itself, in bondage to itself, all wrapped up in itself. That's what mammon wants from you make your life about money, make your life about things, the m ms make life about m money and material goods. That's what Jesus is addressing here. I'm not making this stuff up. Listen, this is very interesting. The entire monetary system in our world, in its own respect, is nothing more than a religious system. And it takes great faith to function and, re- and worship in that religious system of money. But it's a dead-end street because it's a dead religion. If the music stopped right now, think about this, if the music stopped in the world of financial music and all of a sudden there was no more money, did you know that 9 out of 10 people would be left without a chair? Because 90% of the transactions that happen in the economy of this world are backed by nothing. It's all faith. It's all part of a religious system. Even the dollar bill in your wallet doesn't say silver certificate. It says Federal Reserve Note. It's worth nothing. You're actually working in a monetary system by faith. Even the dollar bill in your wallet. Think about that. See, economic is a risky religion. Jesus said you cannot serve God and money. You've got to make a choice. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? See, that's interesting. He first addresses and says, don't get caught up in money. Don't let money become your God. Don't worship at the foot of religious economics. He then says, and I know what you're thinking. Well, then how would I eat? How would I have clothing to wear? Where would I sleep? And so he addresses that next. Does this verse mean that we shouldn't care at all for what we wear or about the investments or the monetary matters in our life? No, it doesn't mean that at all. The meaning here is that we are to take no anxious thought, take no worry. Literally is what it says. The word worry means to strangle. Strangle. So now go back and look at it again. Don't strangle. Don't be strangled about your life. That's what happens when you worry. You're strangling yourself. If you're worried about what you're wearing, what you're eating, what you're drinking, about what you have or don't have materially, your life is tied up in knots. You're being strangled. Here's a great analogy. Somebody said a fog droplet You know, think about that. You're out driving in the early morning and there's fog everywhere. One little tiny droplet of fog, okay, if you take enough fog droplets to cover a seven-city block area, that's, a okay, fog that covers seven city blocks, each droplet, if you take all those droplets in an area the size of seven city blocks and you put all of it together, all that fog together, it's a half glass of water that's a good picture of what worry is all about you begin with something little only half a glass of water but you start thinking about it and wrestling with it and wondering how is this going to work out i just don't see how i don't know what we're going to do how am i going to do that and before long you can't see straight you're actually strangling yourself which jesus said don't do Did you know that fog can shut down an airport? In fact, it can just shut down all the transportation systems. That's what fog can do. Those little droplets that you keep holding on to. Letting a half a glass of water mess you up. You're not receiving from the Lord. You're not living for the Lord as you once did. Why? Because you're all fogged up. Jesus said, don't be anxious about your life. Don't let life strangle you. Don't let worry strangle you. Don't end up in a fog. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? In 1 Peter chapter 5, it says that we are to cast all of our anxieties upon God because He cares for us. You say, well, how do I do that? How do I cast All my cares upon God. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Please, please write it down. Verse 6 and 7, Philippians chapter 4. And turn there, if you will, please. Philippians 4, 6. I'll wait for you. I'm going to take a drink. Philippians 4, 6. We're closing. We're at the end. Hang in there. It says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, here it is, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Three things he said there. Be anxious in nothing. Pray about everything. Be thankful in all situations those three things those three things that's the key be anxious for nothing hand it over to god just give it away i will not allow my life to be strangled by worry pray about everything be faithful in your prayer life every day and then be thankful in all things jesus wants us to be carefree people in this world with this governmental system, with the persecution that you will face. Verse 27, and which, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of your life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither tol, uh, toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He was the wealthiest man and the king of Israel, and yet he was not even as glorified in his arrangement, as the flowers. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, ye of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? By the way, styles change. You can say, Oh, my goodness, my wardrobe is so old-fashioned, I just don't have anything new, all the modern clothes. In six months that will change. I was thinking about this one day. I went over, I used to go over and just park and then go sit on a park bench over by the beach. This old couple was walking by. And they had these clothes on that I thought was like out of the 40s or something. man. I mean, last century. And I'm thinking, my goodness, but they had the biggest smiles on their face. I thought they have no clue what style is, but I don't think I've ever met people That have more of a glow about them as they were holding hands walking by an older couple. Isn't that awesome? We put all the emphasis on the wrong things. Don't get all hung up on fads and fashions. Jesus tells us to check out the flowers. Even Solomon couldn't rival the splendor of flowers. Verse 32, we're closing it down for the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. I love that. So the Gentiles are seeking the stuff. And then Jesus said, and your heavenly Father knows you need the stuff. Isn't that cool? They're seeking stuff. You seek the Father who knows you need the stuff. Big difference for how you live. Here it is. He said it more clearly. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You're going to have enough trouble Today, stop worrying about tomorrow and let God have complete control. Close your eyes, if you will, bow your heads, close your eyes. Let's have a moment of reflection right now where we consider in this moment how worry has strangled us or is strangling us. Consider how going all the way back to the beginning of this chapter how we have participated like a hypocrite in the righteousness of the Pharisees doing things for what we can be seen what we can what people can think of us right now just seek god think about the relationships you have are there people that you have not forgiven are there people who you are holding in contempt Let them go. Release them so that your Father can forgive you and you can be reconciled. Let's have a moment just where you think through and clarify. And listen, it's so simple. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That is the promise of God. So right now, have your moment with God and confess it. Know that He is faithful to forgive you for it. this world could never give what we could never give ourselves you have granted us salvation by grace through faith and that salvation brings us into a relationship with the father that we are called his children that we walk on this earth in a foreign land aliens in this world as citizens of the kingdom of heaven that we're able to have, even in this day that we live, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You have so richly blessed. May we turn over these other things to you. May we turn over the relationships that we've held in contempt. May we turn over the, the, the need to be seen, the selfishness in our hearts may we turn over our finances turn over the material goods it's not that you're asking that we give it all away it's that we never let all that stuff crowd out the relationship with you oh god may we have the heart of a child that we really do believe that what we have is from god and it's a simple understanding and we walk in it by faith, trusting that you will provide each and every day. And Lord, thank you that you promised to remove the worry what is strangling us. It will simply cast our cares upon you. So we do that today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Praise God. Thank you, church, for being here today. I pray you leave with the righteousness, the peace, and the joy of the Holy Spirit over you. God bless. If you need prayer, we've got uh, some elders and prayer partners who can pray with you up front and meet with you.